Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. Earth Day 2022. It's still cold here in the North Country. The temperature hasn't gotten much above 40 degrees Fahrenheit all day long, and there was frost on the ground when I went out for my early morning walk. But the sun is out. The heavy snow that fell a few days ago and brought down branches as big around as my thigh is almost gone, and the birds are in the trees calling with all the optimism in the world as if it's summer. About seven years ago or so, long before politics became so stupidly toxic and meaningless, long before COVID descended and locked us away, long before social norms became tentative and undefined, I started getting calls from customers with an unusual request. For many of them, I had taught workshops and leadership programs all over the world and written articles and white papers and even books for them about topics that were important, topics related to leadership and technology and storytelling and people and global markets. But this request was different. They told me there's a new thing emerging. It's called an audio blog or a podcast, and we'd like you to do them for us. Well, for years, I had produced multimedia training content, both video and audio, so I agreed. I talked about the things they wanted me to explore, brought on guests, interviewed them about their area of expertise and how that expertise related to my client. The programs were well-received, which made me happy, but somewhere along the line, I began to question whether they were actually any good. I had nothing to compare them to, after all, other than radio shows, and the last thing I wanted was to create bad content. So I went looking for insight and education. Now, what I found was not much. Yeah, there were all kinds of training classes for musicians and composers and for people responsible for church music and for sound engineers and boom operators on movie sets. But interviewers, podcasters, not so much. What I did find, though, was National Public Radio. NPR is a very professional outfit in spite of the fact that they're tragically and chronically underfunded. One of the ways they deal with that is by relying on part-time or volunteer producers. And to teach those volunteers how to create the signature NPR sound, they developed an online training curriculum at training.npr.org that's free to anybody willing to go through it, like me. So I did. It taught me all about the mechanics of sound capture, microphone techniques, strategies for good interviews, dealing with different recording environments, and so on. Just about everything I needed to know. Now, the way they did this, the way the curriculum is structured, is that they give you a lesson, and then they have you listen to actual news stories that they and others have produced, both good and bad. Then they have you discern what it is that makes them good or bad. Well, 
I listened to hundreds of them, looking for the lesson in each one, and I learned. Boy, did I learn. Now, one of the stories I listened to was an interview with a guy named Bernie Krauss, who is one of the best-known wildlife sound recordists in the world. He didn't start out doing wildlife sound. He started out as a master of the Moog synthesizer back in the 60s, playing with people like Pete Seeger and the Weavers and the Doors and George Harrison. He went on to do the sound for the movie Apocalypse Now. This guy's good. Years later, Bernie was doing a sound project, a kind of a radical sound project that would blend music and the sounds of nature. It was a project that took him to Muir Woods in Northern California. The sounds that he heard coming through his headphones represented a pivotal moment for him, the moment when he actually decided to leave music behind and take to the woods. Since then, he has recorded tens of thousands of hours of natural sound, what he calls biophony, including both soundscapes and the sounds of countless individual species, many of which have since gone extinct. Today, he and his wife publish under the Wild Sanctuary label. They're both strong advocates for preserving natural habitat and the non-human species that live there. I listened to everything Bernie Krause produced, watched movies about him, read all of his books. He's another one of my heroes. He's in his 80s now, but age hasn't slowed him down. He developed something called niche theory, in which he maintains that animals find frequency-specific niches in which to call so that they don't interfere with the sounds of other creatures and so that their own calls can be heard. When we stomp on those niches indiscriminately with human-created sound, we put those animals at risk. Bernie's work led me to another sound recordist, Gordon Hempton. Gordon calls himself the Sound Chaser, which is interesting because he wrote a book called One Square Inch of Silence. He's one of the founders of an organization called Quiet Parks International dedicated to the idea that national park visitors should be treated to the sounds of nature as much as they are to seeing it. QPI's belief is that national parks should actively limit human-generated sound inside the parks, including airplane overflights and loud vehicles. All the while, I continued to learn about sound production. I learned about track mixing and level setting and techniques to remove unwanted background noise like the rumble of a roadway. This, I realized, was the audio equivalent of editing in Photoshop to remove unwanted elements in a photograph. My podcasts got better, more professional sounding. My interviews became more focused, and I found myself becoming enchanted with the sounds of the natural world. And then I discovered the Wildlife Sound Recording Society over in the UK. This is a group of people dedicated to capturing and sharing and archiving the voices of the natural world. Through them, I met Roger Boughton, a longtime member of the WSRS. Roger's become my good friend and my mentor. I describe him as one of those people who has forgotten more about wildlife sound recording than I'll ever know. He's been doing it for more than 40 years. He remembers when audio editing involved reels of brown magnetic tape and razor blades, when tape recorders weighed 20 pounds, required a dozen D-cell batteries, and would record for about 15 minutes before you had to change the reel of tape. In other words, recording was a serious commitment back then. The president of the Wildlife Sound Recording Society is a guy named Chris Watson. You've probably never heard of Chris. Chris. 
He started out as a musician and was one of the founding members of an influential group back in the early 70s called Cabaret Voltaire. Today, he's one of the most successful sound recordists in the world. In fact, he's David Attenborough's sound guy. If you've seen Blue Planet, The Secret Life of Birds, Green Planet, A Life on Our Planet, or many others, you've heard Chris's work. The WSRS and Roger led me in turn to the Australian Wildlife Sound Recording Group, where I met people from the Southern Hemisphere who were equally committed to capturing and archiving and sharing the symphony of nature. As I learned more and more about sound, I became aware of an ironically silent population of recordists who were devoted to the important task of capturing sounds in the wild. I met Jared Blake, who runs Acoustic Nature and is a passionate environmentalist and sound ecologist. I met Dick Todd, a man I interviewed a year or so ago on the Natural Curiosity Project and described as my personal Dumbledore, both because he looks like him and because he's a magical, mystical inventor of sound and photography gadgets, some of which I'm lucky enough to have in my kit. I met Jim Metzner, who's been producing audio since 1977. As a musician, he opened for Tom Rush, Pink Floyd, and Tina Turner. As a nature sound recordist, he's been producing Pulse of the Planet since 1988. And I met Jacob Job, a National Geographic explorer and founder of the Voices of a Flyway Project. So why am I telling you about these people? Well, maybe to light an Earth Day fire in the only way I know how, and to highlight a problem that rarely gets the attention it deserves. I started my podcast, The Natural Curiosity Project, because I had stories to tell that I thought were interesting and worth sharing. Based on the download numbers and the feedback I've gotten, hundreds of other people agree. I quickly confirmed a belief that I've had for a long time, that everyone has a compelling story to tell, if you're willing to listen and give them a chance to tell it. I've interviewed hundreds of people over the years, and every interview, every production has been a gift and education for me. But these sound people, they're a special lot. Not only did they teach me important lessons, they infected me with their own passion. One thing led to another, and I began to meet other sound recordists who spend their time in the field, recording life in the forest or the prairie or the desert or the shore. Through them, I met biologists, ecologists, land managers, farmers, birders, storytellers, artists, actors, activists, teachers, and business people, all with the same belief, that we have an ethical obligation to share the earth realistically, deliberately, passionately, knowingly with the other species that call the place home. When I started learning about sound and sound capture, I ran across phrases and aphorisms and truths that helped me understand what it was that drove people in the field to get out there and capture these natural sounds, and what was increasingly driving me to do the same thing. From Bernie Krause, I heard the phrase, I like radio better than television because the pictures are better. Think about that. From Gordon Hempton, his observation that silence isn't the absence of something, it's the presence of everything. And from Chris Watson, amusing. Don't you find it interesting that we have eyelids, but we don't have ear lids? Why do you suppose that is? The woods and mountains, the deserts and prairies, the savannas and swamps and wetlands and jungles and tundra are crawling with thousands of nature photographers who want to capture the perfect image of the natural world. I know because I've been one of them for more than 40 years. 
There are hundreds of annual workshops about nature photography. There are dozens of nature photography magazines to stoke the creative fires. And there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of books on the subject. Do you know how many magazines are devoted to wildlife sound? Two. Worldwide, two. And both are published by the Wildlife Sound Recording Society and the Australian Wildlife Sound Recording Group. Workshops? I found three. And books? 11 books on wildlife sound recording worldwide, and Roger Boughton and I wrote one of them. Bernie Krause has written five, Gordon Hempton two. Sound matters, and today, on Earth Day 2022, I want to bring your attention to just how much. I'd like to ask you to do an exercise with me. Pick a day, and early in the morning or late in the evening, go for a walk in the countryside by yourself. Turn off your phone or leave it at home. It'll be there when you get back. Get away from people. Find a place to sit down in the woods or the meadow or the prairie or the desert or wherever you find yourself. Close your eyes and just listen. Tune into the place. Really deliberately listen. Don't just hear. There's a difference. How many different critters can you hear? Don't worry about identifying them. Just hear them. Birds, frogs, bugs moving across the leaf litter on the forest floor. Trees creaking as they rub against each other in the breeze. The sound of a small stream nearby. Here, let me help. And what about human sound? Do you hear people talking, cars going by, the sound of the construction site over there, airplanes flying overhead, music? As you try to focus on the natural sounds, don't you find those human sounds a little bit annoying? I mean, don't condemn them, but be aware of them. Be cognizant of those human sounds. Recognize that the sounds we create compete with the sounds of the natural world. Many of our human-generated sounds are byproducts of our industry-centric lives, while the sounds of other species are critical for their survival. Animals call to find mates, to locate food, and to warn each other about predators. When human sound overwhelms natural sound, it becomes increasingly difficult for them to do that. They can't find mates. They can't hear predators approaching. And in some cases, the sounds we generate can do damage and even kill other species. There's ample evidence in place now to confirm that sonar signals are one of the factors that cause whales to beach themselves and die. This is not a plea to shut down human activity and industry. I'm not an idiot. We need industry. But we also owe it to our neighbors to be responsible, particularly given where we sit on the pyramid of life. As Jacob Job told me so eloquently, if you need a leaf blower, go buy one buy an electric one or one that has a lower sound rating than one with a gas engine. Think twice about putting that loud resonator on your truck's exhaust system. Speak out on behalf of our parks to limit human-generated noise so that the wildlife gets a break, and so do the people who are visiting the park. And here's a sobering fact for you. Gordon Hempton is on a quest to identify the world's quietest places, defined as places where you can sit for 15 minutes. 15 minutes, folks, without hearing any human-generated sounds. And nationwide, 
you can count those places on one hand. Human-created pollution, chemical or otherwise, is bad for the planet. There's no surprise there. We all know that. But noise pollution is an insidious, ever-present threat, and we need to be just as aware of it as we are of the potential for polluting air and water and the land itself. I'm going to put links in the show notes, but may I make a suggestion? Go online and listen to the sounds that the people I mention here have captured. Look at their work. See how important it is and support it. And when you go outside, pay attention to just how noisy we've made it out there. Think about the global impact of that. If I can count on one hand the number of places I can go in the continental United States where I have the ability to sit for 15 minutes, no longer than that, and not hear human noise, something is very wrong. We need to take a step back. Like I said, we don't have to shut down industry. That's stupid. We need industry. But maybe there's a way to do it a little more quietly. It's Earth Day. Go outside, take a walk, and think about that. Is there anything you can do to help? Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.